Welcome to episode 216 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. As you likely know, I've been hosting a free weekly, no more bad Zoom virtual happy hour every week since March 13, 2020. What you may not know is that 50% of the 50 to 60 participants each week have attended more than eight times. Some have attended 12, 15, even 18 times. In fact, 20% say they have lost count of how often they've attended and that they plan their week around this event. How many of these amazingly devoted community members have I met in person? Very, very few. How many have hired me to work with them in some capacity since March? A handful. How many have referred me to prospective clients? Dozens. The event begins at 5 p.m. Eastern every Friday. For the first 75 minutes, there's a mix of Zoom tips and lots of networking and breakout sessions, followed by Q&A at 6.15 p.m. My original plan was to do Q&A for 15 minutes. Then I kept it going until 7 p.m. And now I have to politely say goodbye to the dozen or so participants still in the room at 7.30. What's that I hear about Zoom fatigue? I digress. What I wanna focus on is how consistently providing a free community space that mixes content and connection made it possible for me to launch an entirely new business. I spend about 14 hours a month to prep for and run this event. I'm not paid for those 14 hours, but it's been amazing for business development and relationship building. As a result of this event, I created a certification program, offer private Zoom training, produce online events, and speak about the importance of designing engaging online experiences. Since April, I've earned about $60,000 through these new revenue streams. When I interviewed J.K. Hooley, she said, it's not who you know or who knows you, it's who knows what you know. Over 800 people have signed up for this free weekly event. They know what I know, and gratefully, they've been referring me. Your challenge this week, are you your industry's best kept secret? How can you stay top of mind and offer value? Perhaps it's time for you to start hosting your own gatherings. Get started with a 60 to 90 minute Zoom event for a handful of people in your industry. Then commit to hosting it regularly. Try this and let me know how it goes. Now, on to this week's interview. Today's guest's personal mission is to inspire ambitious leaders to connect to their bigger purpose so they can lead with intention and leave a legacy that feels good. She's the founder and president of The Roundtable, a company that helps leaders navigate change, disruption, and growth. The Roundtable is best known for its group and peer-based coaching and mentoring programs that help organizations galvanize culture and accelerate business performance, all while building leadership capability. In 2014, the Roundtable was awarded a gold award by the Canadian Awards for Training Excellence, and in 2016, they were named Best External Consulting Advisory in Canada at the Canadian HR Awards. In 2018, she was named one of Canada's Women Entrepreneurs of the Year. She's the author of The Grassroots Leisure Revolution and Did I Really Sign Up for This? Please join me in welcoming Glyne Roberts McCabe. Hi, so great to be here, Robbie. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, Glyne, so happy to have you join us from your place in Toronto, Canada. Um, as you know, this is a show about building strong networks and the context is leadership. So tell us, how do you define leadership and when did you realize you had the skills to lead? Such a great question. I've been pondering this and I was thinking, how do I define leadership? And I think in the most simplest definition is one that I'm going to steal from a former boss of mine. He used to say, a leader is a person who has followers. If you've got followers, (laughs) you're a leader. I think for me, and it's a little bit in the intro that you just read, I feel like what a leader does is unlock other people's potential. Like I really feel so passionately that when you're in a leadership role, one of the greatest opportunities you have is to help somebody else 
find their life purpose. And unfortunately, in organizations, we get bogged down with all of the day-to-day stuff that we have to deal with. And we often lose sight of that. And I'll hear people say, well, when I retire, I'm going to give back. And when I retire, I'm going to be able to make this impact. And I just think for all of us that are have the privilege to be in a leadership role, we can do that every single day. Every single day we go in, we are able to literally change somebody's life. And that for me is leadership. And in terms of when did I know I had leadership capability, I always joke around, I'm the oldest of four and I have three younger brothers. So I like to say I've been bossing people around since like the first brother, you know, appeared on the scene when I was about two. I think leadership for me was never something I really thought about. It was just something I naturally fell into in the role in the family, being the oldest. And then it just sort of progressed from there. So I'll go back to my two-year-old toddler self and the roots of my leadership journey. (laughs) Oh my gosh. There's so much of this that I love and I want to unpack. One is, of course, leaders need followers. For me, when I I got asked this question for my 200th episode, Mm. and I was stumped because I had all these great definitions that I'd heard over the years. (laughs) But I was like, but really, it comes down to that one thing. And then, of course, there's always more to say. Um, But I love this idea of giving back, that when you're in a leadership position, you have the possibility of doing that. It's like, Mm-hmm. It's part of it, yeah, with that responsibility, but also picturing you as this toddler who's like, ah, my minions are arriving. <laughs> yes. My brothers could tell you many, many stories. I am not going to give you their names so that you cannot follow up with them. Okay. I'm just putting that out there right <laughs> <Blind>. now. <laughs> so this is interesting though, um, you know, having younger siblings and, and being asked to take on some, some support and help role by a family mm-hmm. who needs, particularly when you have multiple younger siblings. I imagine as you got older, you're taking more and more responsibility for them. But were you also showing that same leadership quality in other areas? Like when you were in school, did teachers look at you and go, oh, Glein, you can totally be the person who should do the X thing? Yeah, you know what? Totally. I mean, I think I was one of those people who, it's interesting, right? Because I've thought about this a lot. I never was the person who ran for student council president. I never was the person that stepped into those really visible leadership roles. But it was almost by default, people would come to me and I would find people dragging me into leadership roles, really. It wasn't something that I necessarily aspire to, or if you look at a typical path, and even when I started my career, I was never thinking I'm going to one day be a CEO, or I'm going to one day climb that ladder. For me, motivation around work has always been around pursuing something that I'm really interested in and passionate about. And so the threads through my career would always be first that, but then, you know, I think I'm one of those people that when I step in, I, I enjoy having teams. I enjoy leading people. I think there's a natural energy I get from being in the role of, you know, helping other people get work done or directing the efforts of other people in a way towards a common goal. So it, it naturally um, came to me. And in fact, if I look back, it was funny, I, I stumbled across an early performance review of mine. And that was one of the things that my boss pointed out, you know, a lot of natural leadership capability. At the time in my 20s, I wasn't thinking about that. I was just seeing, why are people doing it this way? I could do this this way. And I was never shy to speak up and and speak my mind, which is, I think, one of the things that when you're earlier on in your career, often that's what people sort of gravitate to as they go to the squeaky wheel and they say, okay, well, what else do you think? And okay, well, why don't you take this on, right? Um, so that was very much part of my DNA early on. Yeah. Well, it says that you had a lot of practice doing it too. I can relate to the piece about, you said a moment ago, about not running for office, but yet mm-hmm. being sort of pulled into leadership. Um, I, I never ran for office. I think maybe I ran for office once, but like, mm. I just, that's not, that's not how I did things, you know? And yeah. I do remember in high school, I was doing a campaign around recycling effort and the, the government body or whatever, the student council, they actually organized a sign making party for my project. <laughs> 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 so... Community organizing at its finest. It's that kind of influential or like informal influential leadership, right? That you don't even really realize you're doing. And then all of a sudden you turn around and you go, and I remember somebody saying this to me once, do you ever turn around and go, why are all these people following me? Or why are all these, you're like, yeah, why are they? (laughs) But I think that's, that's when you have that sort of natural DNA. So when you were like 12 or so years old, what did you think you'd be when you grew up? 
a teacher, actually. My, I come from, my dad would say, uh, Glein, you come from a line of teachers and preachers. So my grandfather on my dad's side was a very well-known, he died well before, he died when my dad was a child, actually. He was, a, but he was a very well-known um, Welsh Baptist minister. And uh, my grandmother on my dad's side was the first woman to graduate with a master's in science from a Welsh university and um, was a teacher. My great aunt was a teacher. My mother was a teacher. There is so much teaching. And I think it's interesting because I always say to people, be careful of uninformed or um, well-intentioned mentors and how much credit you give them in terms of making your life choices. Because I could tell you from the time I was little, I was going to be a teacher, I was going to be a teacher, I was going to be a teacher. And then I got into high school and I really liked art. I'm quite creative. And so in grade 10, I had an art teacher who really took a shine to me and said to me in grade 11, you should really go into advertising illustration. You'd be really great at that. And that was all I kind of needed to hear in that moment. Okay, I'm going to be an illustrator. And all of a sudden I sort of deviated on that path, which which led to a whole domino effect in my life. And so it's interesting when I look at that period of being about 17 through to, when did I return to teaching? I would have been 27, I guess, when I found my way back into teaching as in teaching adults. But there was sort of this 10-year period of kind of getting diverted into first illustration and then advertising and then you know, what the heck am I doing with my life? I'm a fundraiser now. What am I to back into, um, you know, where I think I'm meant to be, which is, which is teaching, but yeah, sometimes your mentor is, you know, <laughs> you ignore mentorship. Um, All right. So here's a question though, then Glenn, <laughs> since you said that 10 years feels a little bit like a detour, do you feel like you're the skills and connections you made during that 10 year period helped you when you at 27 came back to this new, like you were like coming back to teaching or was it no. really like completely divergent? No, 2000%. Like, I mean, I have no, re- I have no regrets over that. So um, I shouldn't say no regrets. I mean, I think, I think you make life decisions and they bring you to where you are. I would not be where I am now. I truly believe that. But I, I'm always curious, you know, it's like the the path not chosen, you know, the sliding doors movie. <laughs> what would have happened if, because at that time, it's a bit of a backstory. So um, I was in grade 11 going into grade 12 when this got planted in my head that I should become an illustrator the start of grade 12, I ran away from home. My dad was one of these quite domineering kind of people. So I was not, I was living at home. I was continuing to go to high school um, where I'm from in Canada. At that time, high school actually went to grade 13, lucky 13. And people who went to grade 13 were going to go to university. People who went to grade 12 would go off to college, um, kind of a bit of a different system than in the US. And the illustration program I wanted to do was grade 12, like I didn't need to go to grade 13, I could go directly into this college program to become an illustrator, even though I was really tracking towards going to university. And I can remember my mother at the time saying to me, all your peers are going to be in university, you're going off this track, and you're going to go into illustration or to go to college. And is this really what you want to do? Well, you know, 17 years old, living independently, you're going to do whatever you want to do, right? And so I got into illustration college and um, by December knew I was not going to be an illustrator. Like I, I just, I, I realized that I did not have the passion it took to do it. I had the capability, but not the passion. And so there I am mid-December and my parents at that point had moved back to the UK, which is where I'm born. So I'm now by myself in Canada at the age of 18 going, what on earth am I going to do with my life right now? And so then it became the scramble and I switched over to advertising. I went to school and I thought, then thought I was going to be a creative director in an ad agency. But then practicality kind of stepped in for me because I'm by myself in a country. I need a job. All of my choices through that period of time from 21 to 27 were really about 
self, it's Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I need a roof over my head. I need to pay my rent. I need to be, you know, so I chose my college program based on the fact that they had a six, six week job co-op, right? And I chose my co-op placement based on the number of program graduates that they hired from my program. It was at a daily newspaper. I didn't really want to work at a daily newspaper, but hey, there it was, right? And so going into that um, experience and just just looking at that, all those choices, like it's amazing in your life how you have those domino choices. And so I kind of look back and I think, what would have happened if I hadn't left home, if I'd stayed and gone through grade 13, if I'd moved back to the UK to be with my parents, you know, with my parents, right? What would have, how would have life unfolded? But the lessons that I learned from going through, I went through, I built my resilience. My resilience is through the roof, which I think becoming an entrepreneur has been so critical. Um, my ability to be independent. Um, also, when you work for, <laughs> when you start a business and you're on your own, as you know, right, you're, you're kind of plowing away. My ability to create networks, which, you know, we've been talking about um, pre-show was so huge for me because I didn't have a family network here. I'm born in England. My entire family is in the UK. And so all of those things, all of those soft skills that I developed through that period of time in my um, early 20s, I, you know, I couldn't, you know, I, I wouldn't trade those for the world. That's so interesting. It's just because I love how introspective you are about that period of your life. And that Sliding Doors movie, you know, you're watching, spoiler alert, but you're watching the movie and you're like, oh, it's so great. Like, you know, the, the one with the short hair, she's got a nice hairdo. She's having such a great life. The other one's like having a crummy life. But, you know, the one has a shorter life, who has a good life. Like, <laughs> you know, she doesn't learn any I mean, lessons. It's like, yeah, I mean, I think the thing is you can always live in what if, right? Like it's easy to go into what if, but. But don't stay there, right? Like you can't stay there, but it sounds like you had some really valuable takeaways that you, Mm -hmm. in fact, you can name them and you're right. These are all things that as an entrepreneur you need. When did you realize that you wanted to be an entrepreneur and you weren't going to just look for another job? Like how early (laughs) was that an itch? Um, well, it's funny, right? Because I always say to people, watch your patterns. So watch your patterns and see what you keep repeating, right? Because I, I really believe that the universe will come along and it'll start hitting you with a stick until it really, you know, the, the stick gets bigger and bitter, bigger until it's a big, you know, baseball bat upside your head eventually. My pattern that I kept repeating was I would go into a job and I would be literally a superstar performer in one year. I was in there. I was soaking it up. My boss loved me, could not get enough of me. Year two, my boss was driving me crazy. Get out of my way. I know better than you do. And so I would leave. So I literally had, I'm Gen X. And, you know, the the um, criticism of Gen X as a cohort is that we're not loyal. Well, we're bitter and we're not loyal and all of that kind of stuff. And And really because we were... Um, you know, the mental model for Gen X coming into the workplace is, hey, workplace isn't going to look after you for 25 years. You're going to have to look after yourself. And how you're going to look after yourself is to get experience, keep getting experience. So for me, I really adopted that Gen X pattern of every two years I was moving. So I was going into a job, (laughs) but it was this pattern of eventually my boss would drive me crazy and I'd want to get out of there. And then I landed when I was uh, 29, I landed at a consulting firm. And uh, the gentleman that ran it, he's the one who said, you know, a leader is a person who has followers. He was incredibly progressive as a leader and he was extremely strengths-based. And when I hit my pattern, because for them, I was their head of business development. And um, when you're in, superstar, second year in, starting to get irritated, third year, like hitting the start of the third year in, I loved the company. I recognized that this was my pattern. I wanted to stay, but I hated my job. I was having panic attacks. I was sweating through layers in my suits. I was like, what is going on? I love this company. I can't handle this job. And yet it was actually in a weird way, less pressure than other jobs I'd had before I'd come into this. And so I remember talking to my boss and saying, I don't know what to tell you. I think I need to go. I think I need to leave. I don't know what, you know, this isn't working. And and I'm so A, proud that I had that conversation with him at that time. And then what he did was rather than rather say, okay, well, see ya. 
he, you know, he kind of put me on this coaching program that we were piloting. And in that program, I really got to do some kind of navel gazing around what that pattern's all about. And the realization that I had in that moment was my need for independence. So that thing that got wired into me really early, only girl, three younger brothers, never had to share a room, never had to share my toys, never had to do anything, left home at 17, never had to you know, deal with anybody. Didn't even have, like having roommates, you know, <laughs> like, you know, the, that whole piece of independence that was so wired into me that came out. And that's what the, I remember the assessor saying to me, you know, you're going to just need so much independence. And the penny dropped for me around why the job I was in was so challenging in that moment, because at that time I was head of sales responsible for the entire revenue for the firm I had a peer who was head of consulting. Well, salespeople sell consultants. I had a peer who was head of marketing who also ran our open enrollment division and didn't necessarily support the consulting business the way I felt it should be supported. So here I am feeling like all this pressure to make this big budget number every year. And I feel like I don't have the control because I have this person doing this over here to the left of me and this person doing this to the right of me. And I had this, you know, and so I went into my boss and I said, here's what I've learned about myself. And I really realized I need a sandbox or else I'm not going to be happy. And he was phenomenal. So he was like, okay, well then what do we do and how do we reconfigure? And he put me into a role where I became the managing partner over a part of the business. And, and that satisfied me. And I was able to stay in that role then for another five years. So I, I, I always used to tease him. I'm like, I've only, you know, I'm usually like somewhere two years, like, seven years that in dog that's like dog years for me like it's like I've been here 49 years where's my gold watch I got to that point and then what it became for me in that because it was a highly entrepreneurial culture I was the succession candidate for him to become CEO of the business but what I realized was I didn't love that business I didn't love consulting it wasn't working for me and so I left and but you know it was interesting Robbie asked me about like when did you know you to be an entrepreneur all the way along, I was always dreaming up little little businesses I could do. And, and I'd sort of explored different avenues all the way along. And then I went to a organization that was um, a women's, a national women's network. And I will tell you that throughout my career, I have always applied for jobs that I have had no business applying for. <laughs> I have not been qualified. This job, I saw the ad in the paper. It was like it was written for me. I, w- I was, I thought, oh my gosh, this is it. This is the perfect, perfect job. And so I um, went into the organization, had a few red flags through the interview process, things that were a little bit like make you go, hmm. One of my strengths, also major liability, is I'm highly optimistic, and I'm not highly ego led. And I'm, I'm, you know, so, you know, when you sell consultants, you're, you know, you kind of get used to letting them be the star of the show and you can sit back. And so I talked myself into overcoming those red flags, right? I saw them and I went, "Mm." anyway, I got into this organization. I started on a Tuesday because it was after a long weekend. By the Friday, I knew I'd made a very big mistake because I was literally working for a sociopath. And so when you, I, I, I bet I am so blessed that that individual came into my life because what it did was over six months pushed me into a corner where my only option was to quit that job and start my business. I think I would have been so bound by fear and who am I to do this and all of those things. And so that's when I talked about the universe hits you with a bigger stick that individual was my big stick. And I I absolutely am super grateful that they came into my life. Right. But, you know, quitting that job and I, you know, again, backstory, husband, who's a social worker who earns one quarter of the income I was earning, staying at home with our then three-year-old daughter. So me walking home and saying, hi, honey, I think I need to quit my job. is a big deal. Right. Yeah. But it was that it was I needed that catalyst. I needed that momentum to really step into my, you know, path. I really I do feel that we're all here to we're all here to do something in this world and to contribute in some way. And often fear holds us back from leaning into that. 
And often fear also helps push you into it. It sounds like. Totally. Cause like, well, it was almost like I had no other choice. Like when the, yeah. when the pain outweighs the fear, which is what was happening to me, you know, when you're in a, anybody, and I think anybody who's been in a dysfunctional workplace and, or even a dysfunctional relationship, like I, I could almost equate it to a relationship that's horrible. I had um, an experience where I was at a, an organization for a decade mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I was in a role that normally was two years and people would leave, two yeah. years people would leave. And so on my third year anniversary, my bosses were like, um, you're still here. And I was like, um, yeah, so <laughs> should I not be? And so then I got more and more responsibility. And then I was like, well, I'm never, I was like, I'm never leaving. I'm going to, I'm going to be pulled out of here for, first. I mean, I literally yeah. was saying that. And I, I had that job all through my thirties and my bosses left. And then everyone in my department left and we were a pretty small organization, like 30, 35 employees. Mm. And we went down to under the, under 30 and my, my own department, you know, at most was 11 and went down to like six Mm. and everybody was new. My, my immediate boss was there less than a year and everyone came in after him. Right. And it, you know what? Like I had a mentor who was trying to push me to leave my job for all these years, but when you don't have as much of a reason to stay, then the thing you have a reason to go to seems just more appealing. I mean, interestingly, he didn't last even a year. Like I left <laughs> and he was, he was gone shortly after me. But it, if I hadn't had him, like you said, you know, he came into my life. And because of that, I suddenly thought, well, I can do this other thing. Yeah. You need right. a bit of a burning platform, I think. I don't know. There's something about <laughs> well, it's it. Com- I mean, it's comfortable to stay in a role. I mean... Oh yeah. A lot, I mean, I kept my mentor is Dory Clark, and and she tried intervening years for years, trying to get, leave my comfort. And I, and I thought, oh my god, I had no idea I was so into security and a paycheck and health insurance. <laughs> like she'd tell me, like fly, fly, and I'm like, no, I, I like it here, you know. <laughs> and, so and now I'm like, <laughs> yeah, now I'm all breezy about it. Like I'm, yeah, yeah. you know, now I'm totally into it. I'm, I, I was saying, oh, I'm totally unemployable, and then I now work part-time for a company doing coaching and uh-huh. it's all entrepreneurs on staff. So it feels different than like, I'm like, I never want to work for someone. Well, this is different. Yeah. <laughs> so like even then you're like, never say never. Well, I, we never know what we're going to be gaining, right? Like we always look, when we look at change, we're always thinking about what we're going to be losing, mm-hmm. but we don't know what we're going to be gaining. Right. And there's so much gain that comes that, you know, you can't anticipate until you're in it. So how long ago did you start the roundtable? Uh, so it's been, I had my very last day of employment on my 39th birthday. So it was 13 years ago. I walked out the door on my birthday, shoving file folders at people as I left. <laughs> so yeah, it's been that long. It's crazy. I actually it was left. like two years. I don't know. I don't know where the time's gone. Yeah, I left uh, my, my role at around that same time. That's really mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah, 2007, I think it was, yeah. That's so interesting. Yeah. So, so I mean, I, it's interesting because, you know, when you're 39, you realize you know more than you used to and there's still more you don't know. Like you, mm-hmm. you're at an age where you finally accept that there's things you don't know. At, at like 23, you don't believe that. Yeah. <laughs> you believe you know everything you need to know. Um, but did you know that it was going to be this or did it start out as something else? Like you've, you've developed this incredible program. Yeah. But did you ha- have a real vision for it or did you just feel your, no, you felt your way through it? Yeah. I mean, I would say that because it was pretty abrupt, actually. Like I, I literally came home one day and looked at my husband and he was the one who said to me, he said, you need to do your own thing. You've been talking about it for years. You need to do your own thing. And so because I was a senior executive, I was running the business for this other individual. I needed to give two months notice. And surprisingly, I worked every day of those two months. Usually you try and get people out of the organization. But one of the things I did for myself over the course of that two months was I would do something every single day that would kind of move the business forward. So whether it was reaching out to a network contact that I wanted to maintain a relationship with, whether it was understanding how corporate tax worked or how to register a business name. And so I did all of that. But um, when I walked out the door, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I, I knew that I wanted to do something for leaders. I knew I was really passionate about peer groups. I was really passionate about, you know, group coaching and leaders teaching each other. I had kind of this 
fuzzy idea in my head. But I also would say, you know, like fear gripped me. And, um, and also the realities of a situation when you're walking out, your husband doesn't have a job, he's got to find a job, his income potential, because he's in social work is way less than yours. And your entire lifestyle is built around your income. Um, from 2007 to 2008, like I would say 18 months from kind of January 2007 to April of 2008, it was hyper stressful. It was a scramble. I was basically saying, hey, here I am, extra pair of hands. What do you need me to do? And I was running around doing anything for cash flow. It was truly about getting cash flow as I was then also building this business. And I was fortunate I got into a business startup program, which gave me a little bit of um, in Canada with employment insurance that it, so it sort of paid me employment insurance to take this program. So I was, I really kind of stumbled into that and um, which is a story on its own, but that, that whole experience of kind of getting me through those 18 months. And then what we did was we make some lifestyle choices. Okay, we're going to sell the house that doesn't, that, that's bleeding us dry. And we're going to move and downsize the mortgage so it can all be around my husband's salary and not around mine. And those choices, and those are some of the hard choices that you make where you're thinking about what you're losing and not really knowing what you're going to gain as a result. And so it wasn't really until I would say, you know, 2008 that I was able to really focus on the business once I sort of got that off of my plate and could dive in. So 2008 in the U.S. was a real recession. (laughs) Same in Canada. (laughs) And I'm like, that happened globally. So uh, because whatever happens to the U.S., we, you know, somehow bring everyone down with us. But uh, I've actually, it's interesting you, the, the timing. I actually have interviewed quite a few people whose businesses started in 2008, 2009 mm-hmm. because they basically left or lost a job in the middle mm-hmm. of this recession. Yeah. But you sort of had a little bit, it's, it, you know, you had a runway, a stressful runway, but you had a little bit of, you know, get, you know the two months plus the 18 months, and now you're in the middle of 2008. Did that runway help you overcome the recession in a way that maybe someone who was just starting out wouldn't have had? Um, I think, I'm not sure. I think what, I think when you're starting at zero and I had very modest goals, like sometimes I talk to people that are starting their business and I'll say, you know, what, what are your financial requirements? And they've come out of very big salaries and they'll say, well, I want to replace my salary of $250,000 or $200,000. And I'm, you know, and maybe people can do that. I just know for me, that's not what the first two, three years of my business look like, right? And so, you know, I always feel like I'm being the bucket of cold water. My goal was way more modest. I mean, my goal when we were, you know, when I first quit, I had a very simple goal. We were going into our savings by $2,000 every month. All I wanted to do was keep us at break even. And that was, and that was 2000 to our savings paying the mortgage, buying groceries and keeping the lights on. It was not going out for dinner and doing fun things. It was like the bare minimum that we absolutely needed. And so, um, you know, that was my goal. And anytime I hit that in a month, I felt great. Anytime I didn't hit that in a month, I'd feel like, ooh. but it was this, that was all I was trying to do in that first year. And then in the second year, I had, um, I'd land, I'd been um, fortunate enough to have a former colleague of mine give me a big project where I got to go all over the United States actually doing culture integration workshops. Um, and it paid me a chunk of cash. And I took that chunk of cash. And I hope my husband doesn't listen to this podcast because he'd go, well, you did what? Um, but I took that chunk of cash and I hired a coach. And my goal with the coach, I said to the coach was, okay, I've launched this business because late, late 2007, I you know, we've been working on this business startup program. I launched the business to crickets, right? Like that's the other thing you think you're going to send out the email and then your phone's going to be ringing off the hook. Um, but I hired this business coach to help me flip my revenue. So my revenue was nine, like a hundred percent from Glyne Roberts McCabe running around doing management one-on-one training and consulting and all of this stuff to, 100% the round table. I wanted to 
And so that didn't matter, like a hundred, you know, flipping the revenue would be that maybe I made 30,000 with Glyne doing this this year. Next year, I'm going to make 30,000 with the roundtable doing it. That was my goal. And so investing in that, A, helped me stay accountable. It helped me really keep focused on that goal that if I was really going to build this business, I needed to be able to dedicate it. And then I have to say, when I no longer had the responsibility for the mortgage on my back in, you know, sort of May 2008, it could all be around the husband's salary. That was all good. That was kind of the game changer because then I didn't feel that pressure. If I made money, it was great. If I didn't, it didn't matter. I could really focus on building out the business. And so really for me, when, when people say, when did you start the business? Technically 2007, but really it was that 2009, the early part of 2009 that I really felt I'd moved away from doing a lot of that chase work. And I was really starting to be able to put a you know big emphasis on the business and, and start to build the business out. And I, I'm sure, you know, you've had this similar experience with your own work. You have an idea of where you think your business is going to go, but then you get into doing it. And sometimes, you know, like you zigzag, you, you, you <laughs> Boy, one direction. I have to go, say, oh, line, <laughs> prior to the pandemic, I was best known for teaching people how to network in person and you know, <laughs> eye contact, business cards, shaking hands and body language are not really the things yeah. we talk about or teach right now. And now I'm like a Zoom expert, you know? So yeah. uh, yes, you, you follow the path wherever it goes. Um, I love that you hired a coach that you decided mm-hmm. to invest in yourself and your business. Mm-hmm. And I, and I, that for you is defining moment of when mm-hmm. your business became a business. Cause prior to that, it's almost like you were just doing anything for like money, like Cashful. I'll consult with this. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll move boxes, whatever you need, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's not like a plan. It's just mm-hmm. like a stay afloat yeah. and you just paddle harder. You're just like, yeah, yeah you know, yeah. but I think having a, having like a, a coach who gives you strategy and accountability it puts so many things in place. It's amazing. Yeah, I'm, I'm a huge fan of coaching. Like, I mean, I mean, I hired coaches prior when I was in my leadership roles. Right. I became a coach and I did my coach training back in 2001. So it's been a, you know, I, I'd been in coaching at one point. I thought I was going to be a hired gun coach myself. That was sort of one of the, the paths I was exploring. I I truly do not know how you survive as a business owner or as a leader without a coach. I don't, I like, I know I would not be where I am now without the coaches that I've worked with, the peer groups that I've been a part of. There's no way. There's no way. This is actually a great segue line because I would love to hear a little bit about your networks. I mm-hmm. imagine over the last couple of decades, you have met and amazing people, a lot more people probably even know you. Um, I'm always curious, you have sort of your inner circle of people that you're going to you know, find ways to stay yeah. in touch with. They don't forget who you are. But then there's sort of like that second and third sort of layer or tier out, people you see annually at an event or work mm. for five years ago or has a client five years ago or just looser connections with people that you like. How do you think about those connections, like nurturing and sustaining? Like, is there a habit or a practice or a philosophy that keeps you a little bit top of mind with other folks? You know, I, I I think about this a lot actually because I think ma- I think building a network is one thing. I think maintaining your network is a whole other ball game. And I know for me, LinkedIn has been a really great godsend to actually maintain my network because what it allows me to do is to stay top of mind with those peripheral people on a fairly regular basis. So what I've noticed is pre-LinkedIn, it was one of those things where I'd be thinking, who haven't I be going through my, (laughs) this is how old I am, my Rolodex. Uh. And I would be looking for my, you know, business cards of who haven't I talked to lately. And, um, Now with LinkedIn, you know, I had a call today, earlier today, actually, from a guy that I probably haven't talked to him in eight or nine years. Like, we've not kept in touch. He's been watching me on LinkedIn and seeing me there. So he's felt like we've been in touch. I was super thrilled to hear from him when he reached out today. 
but there's a, but I do have a lot of people like that. So I, I think one of the things that um, technology has allowed us to maybe overcome that hurdle in a way that wasn't there for, for us before. And I do sort of subscribe to the notion that, you know, a lot of people, like I have a lot of followers on LinkedIn and yet what I would say is the relationships I cultivate. And when I think about my network, the thing that I do really pay attention to is who are the 20 people that if something really went sideways, I can call and they've got my back. And that's that group is, is where I will spend the most energy and time always. Right. I think the periphery network, and I was thinking about this actually because I was doing a talk a few weeks ago about women in leadership. And um, we we're talking about the behaviors that, tend to get in the way of women. And one of the behaviors that's really fascinating is um, women are really great at actually building relationships. It's one of our superpowers, I would say, as a gender, you know, we're very kind of, you know, harmony, and we make connections through, like, hey, what do you do? You have kids? Oh, I have kids too. And like, that's what we're always looking to do. Whereas guys tend to build trust more by let's do something, let's go play golf together, or let's go and, you know, do an activity together. And then we build sort of trust in that way. Whereas for women, it's really about finding those common things. So we, we're really good at building relationships. What we are terrible at, that men are phenomenal at, is leveraging our networks, picking up that phone and going, hey, I haven't talked to you in eight years. Like, and I was actually saying this to my friend David this morning. I was saying, you know, it's funny because I bet it never crossed your mind not to reach out to me because you hadn't talked to me in eight or nine years. And he said, no, why would I, like, why would that even matter? But I know women who'd be like, ooh, haven't kept in touch with Robbie. Don't know if he'd remember me. Haven't done anything from him, for him in the last six years. So how, I better not ask him for something right? So I think one of the things that I'm trying to get better at is actually in that extended network (laughs) is leveraging my extended network more and and letting go of that um, self-talk that's like, no, you shouldn't, you don't reach out, you don't don't make the ask because you haven't put in the time you need to put in in order to be able to make that ask, right? I thought of like eight things I want to say. So (laughs) let's pick one of them. My gosh, I love this conversation so much, Klein. So um one thing I was thinking is that a lot of the people I work with are entrepreneurial women in their 50s and beyond. I used to say mm-hmm. 50s and 60s, but I now work with women in their 80s and 70s. So can't, I can't limit the upper limit. But um, And at that, what you just said about that resistance or reluctance to reach out and mm-hmm. feeling like you haven't done enough or aren't, aren't enough, um, or who am I to do this? It's, it's fascinating. And the way I've been trying to overcome it is I have an exercise I do with a lot of my clients that are make a list of 100 people that A, would, like, would, know, would know your name, like recognize your name. Uh, B, if they reach out to you out of the blue, you'd be happy to hear from them. And then the third criteria is sort of like if it helps narrowing it within an industry or a job title or something if it's really if there's a purpose down the road to why you're reaching out to narrow that down but really aim for the the people that you just always enjoyed because even if it's not right for them they'll pass your name along like they already know like and trust you and then there's no ask it's just doing catch-up calls you know i i in fact the pandemic was a great time to do this like i'm taking stock on the relations with my life the people that i really care about and yeah. how I want to be spending my time. So mm-hmm. I just thought, like, I want to reach out and check in with some people that I haven't seen in a while. What have you been up to? Let's schedule a chat. And they would, actually, I lost a client once. I had a client I'd worked with for a year, and she was ready to renew for another six months. And I gave her that as a homework assignment, and she got offered a job. that she couldn't <laughs> turn down. She was an entrepreneur, and I was helping her with her business. And she got offered this dream job. And she said, I had your voice in my head and I knew I didn't need the job. So I threw all these, I need this, I need this, I need this, I need this, I need this. And she threw all this stuff. I need to be able to still have my own clients. And they said, yes. <laughs> and, you know, she's, she's better situated than a lot of people right now because of that. Because now the pandemic has hit, I think she's probably landed a little more softly, but yeah. it's, it's an interesting, talk about sliding doors moment. Yeah. Um, but that exercise of just reaching out and saying hello and reactivating your network and that you don't know where it will go. I mean, 
It's, it's well, and I, you know, what I really love about that. What I really love about that is this: who are the people who you who know you, like you, and trust you, and and would you be happy to hear from them if they were to reach out? It was funny because I I literally was just having this conversation with my husband a couple of weeks ago because we were driving around and there's a couple that we haven't seen in a long time that we really like, and I said, why don't we just drop by and see if they're home? And he was like, what? You can't drop by and can't drop in on people. I'm like, remember when we were kids, we'd just like drop over to people's houses, but it was this big, like, I don't think you just drop in. And I said to him, I said, but if it was reversed and they showed up at our door saying, hey, we were in your neighborhood, what, how would we feel? We'd be thrilled to see them. Like we would love to see them, right? Because it's been so long. And so I think, I think when we put, I love how you put that spin on that because I think that's what it is. We're always so you know, um, concerned about what people are going to think of us. And I learned a new phrase the other day. What was it? Um, the FOPO, fear of other people's opinions. I heard of FOMO, but I hadn't heard of FOPO before. I'm like, I love that. So many of us have FOPO. <laughs> oh my gosh, FOPO. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> That's really amazing. So, um, you know, I'm excited to stay in touch with you. I'm so thrilled that we were introduced at all. So um, it makes sense. This is why I host a podcast, you know, to have these great conversations. So let's say we're, we're, you know, we're in touch, but let's say a year from now, we reconnect. And I say, you know, it's been a year since we, we did that interview. Um, what's, what's worth celebrating? Like, what are you excited about that happened in the previous year? So what are you going to be saying? Let's toast to this. <laughs> um. They found a vaccine for COVID-19? Yahoo! (laughs) Just because when we're talking right now, we happen to be in the middle of a pandemic for people who listen later on. But um, I think for me, from a business perspective, we're launching a new business in, um, in the fall. So, you know, when you have free time during a pandemic, you tend to, I always say, idle hands or the devil's work shop, you know? And here I am, entrepreneur who likes to be creative and new ideas and with some space in her schedule, let's just come up with a new business idea. So we're launching a business in um, October this year, just uh, in terms of baiting the content uh, called the Group Coach Academy. So I would love to be able to tell you that the Group Coach Academy is fully launched, major success, helping helping coaches really realize the dream of being able to shift from one-to-one to big impact group coaching. So that's my one thing for the new business. And then for the roundtable, I think, you know, we continue to um, work with just some unbelievable clients. And I think one of the things that I'm really excited with that business is almost like the the next generation of that. So we've we've now created such a strong system that I would love to be able to say to you, hey, Robbie, I've got like a bunch of coaches across North America who are trained up on the roundtable system and bringing that into their, their communities. And we've grown our network because as you know about me, I mean, one of the things that makes our business different at the roundtable, and it's from my roots and not-for-profit where I had all these crazy volunteers I had to, you know, manage and engage and build, you know, networks around. That's what the roundtable is. We're a community. We're a community of leaders. And I always think that what we do, yeah, we do group coaching and yeah, we help leaders do all the things accelerate. But what we do on top of that is build connections and create community and have leaders like really bust that myth of it's lonely at the top. It does not need to be. And you can create connection within your peer community and support each other in leadership. It does not have to be this lonesome journey. Heroic leadership is dead. It's all about the collective. So, you know, I'm, you know, the vibrancy of that roundtable community and continue to see that grow beyond where we are by having other networks of coaches involved to me would be something really cool to celebrate. Gosh, I can't wait to celebrate all of that with you. <laughs> the vaccine, I will tell you just from my personal note, because I can't wait to hug a stranger. That's like on my my bucket list. <laughs> I, know, I think we're all so over Zoom right now, right? <laughs> Fine. How can people find you and follow your work? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they can find me at goroundtable.com. Goroundtable.com is our main website. From there, you'll find all of our, we're on all the social platforms. People can track me down on LinkedIn. I think I'm probably the only Gline on LinkedIn. Maybe there's a couple of us, but uh, 
you can find me there and I'm always happy to link in with people and hear what people are up to. So thanks so much for having me here today, Robbie. Well, brilliant. We're going to have all those links, including to your LinkedIn and your Twitter at onthechmooze.com. Klein, it has been really fun having this conversation. Thank you for sharing your story. Yeah, it's been great being here. Thanks for being so great about, you know, exploring all different avenues of life. It's been fun. I hope you enjoyed that entry with Glyne. Such a pleasure to speak with her and learn about her leadership journey. What is your key takeaway from our conversation? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 216. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's show, as well as over 200 archived episodes of this Pinterest-inspired page. Reach out and let me know which were your favorite interviews. Are you a presenter or meeting professional? The 5% Advantage program is a four-week certification program that helps presenters and meeting professionals grow in their confidence with Zoom, online facilitation, and virtual event design so they can reduce their tech angst and host more engaging online experiences. Complete the four weeks and pass a certification video to become a certified virtual event professional, hashtag no more bad Zoom. The days and times for the next cohort will be set once we reach a minimum of six participants. There's a maximum of 12 per cohort. Email me at Robbie at RobbieSamuels.com if you'd like to read the full agreement and then join the waitlist. Congratulations to Rocky Williams, Jody Pavia, and Dorothy Wilhelm for doing the work to earn this designation, which is verified by Credential.net. If you enjoyed this episode with Glein, please share it with your friends and don't forget to subscribe so don't miss next week's show. Remember, subscribing is always free. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review on Apple Podcasts. It's easy to find our page at itunes.onschmooze.com. Thank you in advance and look forward to connecting again next week. And I'll be interviewing another town professional who's achieved success in their field or industry. I'll ask probing questions to get them to share untold stories about their leadership journey and how they built and sustained their professional network. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.